is Wendy Fenton, and I'm the coordinator of the Humanitarian Practice Network at the Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI. And I'd like to welcome everyone to today's event entitled Venezuelan Migrants in Colombia, an Inclusive Humanitarian Response. But before we get started, please can I ask you to click on the globe at the bottom of your screen and select the language that you'd like to listen to this event in. We have simultaneous Spanish and English translation available. Okay, so let's begin. Since 2016, the ongoing political and socioeconomic crisis in Venezuela has resulted in political instability, economic decline, deterioration of state structures and services, and increases in corruption, crime, and violence, undermining people's livelihoods, health, and security. And more than 6 million people have left the country, almost 5 million of whom have moved to other countries in the region. More than 1.8 million have sought refuge in Colombia alone. But despite the scale of the crisis and the efforts of the Colombian government, civil society groups and aid organizations to respond, the critical needs of marginalized groups continue to be poorly understood or overlooked. So today we'll explore the situation of marginalized Venezuelan migrants in Colombia and what more could be done to better understand and meet their needs. Drawing on articles from the 80th edition of the Humanitarian Exchange Magazine and their own research and experience, our panelists will discuss the discrimination faced by LGBTQI migrants living with HIV and the heightened risks of gender-based violence and trafficking for women, girls, and LGBTQI caminantes or walking migrants. We'll also discuss how different actors are responding and what action should be taken to ensure that marginalized groups of Venezuelan migrants are included in the response and have access to the services and support they need. Um, we also want to hear your perspectives uh, from those of you in the audience, and you can share your thoughts and reflections in the chat. And if you have a question for our panel, please do use the Q&A box to send these in, and I'll put them to the panel a little later on. As I mentioned earlier, you can listen to this event in English or Spanish. So please go to the navigation panel at the bottom of your Zoom screen and click on the globe interpretation button and then select the language channel you'd like to use. Uh, closed captions in English are also available during the event. So please access these by clicking on the button at the bottom of your screen. And just a reminder that this event is being recorded the video will be available on the event webpage in a couple of days time and you'll also be able to listen to the discussion through the ODI event podcast channel. Okay, so now let's meet the panel. So first a very warm welcome to Kristen Kiros. Kristen is a specialist in international law and politics. She's a member of the board of Civilis Human Rights an organization that defends the rights of individuals, groups and organizations to freedom of association and to act legitimately in all areas of human rights. She's been part of the HUM Venezuela team since its creation and has been in charge of coordinating the community diagnostics carried out by organizations that are part of this platform. And we'll hear more about this later. I'm also very pleased to be joined by Adriana Marcella Perez Rodriguez, the co-founder and director of the Observatory of Gender Issues of Norte de Santander which is a civil society organization dedicated to feminist research and knowledge production in the Northwest Colombian region that borders Venezuela. 
I'm delighted too to welcome Lucia Ramirez Bolivar. Lucia is an attorney specializing in constitutional law and has a master's degree in social work with an emphasis on international social welfare and poverty and inequality. Lucia has worked in research, teaching, litigation, and human rights advocacy, particularly in forced migration and women's rights with international cooperation agencies and NGOs in Colombia and the US. Currently, she's a researcher in drug policy at De Justicia. And next, I have the pleasure of introducing Alexander Allegria Lozada, my co-editor for this edition of the Humanitarian Exchange. Alex is a sociologist and a professional in international marketing and advertising, and has studied public management with an ethnic and gender focus, and also cultural management. Currently, he's a qualitative research analyst at Profamilia in Colombia. And finally, I'm delighted to introduce Feliciano Reina Gantom, who can't be with us today, but has kindly video recorded his opening remarks for us. Feliciano is the founder and executive president of Acción Solidaria, which works to reduce the social impact of the HIV epidemic in Venezuela and other Spanish-speaking countries. And he founded and is a key actor in several other civil society-based human rights initiatives in Venezuela, including Code Vida and Civilis Derechos Humanos, and has served on the boards of Civicus, the Global Alliance for Citizen Participation, and the International Center for Nonprofit Law, where he is still an advisory board member. Um, right, so now let's hear from Feliciano. Uh, please note that the video is in English and that as Zoom makes it difficult for us to hear the translation, we've added Spanish subtitles and we've posted the uh, transcript in the chat. So let's hear from Feliciano. Buenos dias, buenas tardes. Good morning, good afternoon to all. I thank the Humanitarian Policy Group for inviting me to join you in this very special session on the effects of Venezuela's complex humanitarian emergency on the vast majority of the population on the ground and how it has also forced millions to flee our country. To the human rights movement, it became evident between 2015-2016, after submitting reports to the Universal Periodic Review, to treaty bodies, to uh, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, that we were moving beyond a human rights crisis into one of a humanitarian na uh, nature. Years of the erosion of the rule of law, lack of access to justice, vast corruption, have produced a severe deprivation of rights, uh, for example, in the access to food, to education, to health, or to basic services such as electricity or uh, water. One of the issues that also became evident was uh, the lack of data that would explain the extent of the situation. Uh, the state was either withholding information or simulating that uh, the situation was not as dire. And that brought a large group of organizations to come together in producing data that would guide the humanitarian response. This is why uh, a, a platform like Hume Venezuela came to life. 
Uh, it is an effort by many organizations on the ground. It's over 300 already, and we have been producing information uh, that can guide our own actions and uh, possibly uh, that of uh, international organizations. For now, what we're seeing on the ground, and I hope that this is part of your reflections, is that at least 70% of the Venezuelan population is living in multidimensional poverty, that at least 14 million people are food insecure, that some 18 million lack sufficient access to health services, and that over 4 million children are also having inadequate education. I hope your discussions are really productive, that you're able to reach decision makers, and that you also reinforce your own work on the ground, your own really valuable work in order to produce the adequate responses needed by those millions of people in humanitarian need, both in Venezuela and outside of our borders. Thank you. Many thanks to Feliciano for his remarks, which I think highlight how the intersection of the erosion of the rule of law and human rights, systemic corruption and economic deprivation in Venezuela have resulted in this complex humanitarian emergency, which has driven millions to leave the country. And it's shocking to learn that in 2022, more than 14 million Venezuelans are food insecure and 18 million are unable to access adequate health care. Feliciano also highlighted how Venezuelan civil society organizations are responding to the crisis and working together through the Hume Venezuela platform to fill a critical public information gap. You can find a link to Feliciano's article on the Hume Venezuela civil society platform and the right of access to public information in the chat now. Um, let me now turn to our panelists now that Feliciano has set the scene. Um, my first question is to Kristen. Uh, Kristen, as we just heard from Feliciano, civil society has played a critical role in advocating for the international humanitarian community to recognize and respond to the crisis in Venezuela. Can you tell us a bit more about Hum Venezuela's role and why it is needed? Hola Wendy, gracias. Muy buenos días para todos y todas los presentes. Agradecemos la, la invitación. Good morning and thank you for the invitation. First of all, to my colleagues of UM Venezuela, just uh, want to say thank you. Um, we they couldn't join today, but for me it's a pleasure to be here. I've been part of this initiative and I can talk about it, about the experience. Regarding Wendy's uh, question, I, th uh, I think it ha uh, the work of civil society has been crucial to uh, tackle this emergency that we have since 2000. 15, because this needs to be a big worry for civil society. In uh, Feliciano's article uh, that uh, has been shared on the chat, 
he describes very well this uh, need that uh, Venezuela has to access um, public information, and it describes the work of civil society and organizations and how important this is in order to generate information and data that can really show the scale of the emergency to the international community. Um Venezuela, as Feliciano has said in the video, has a total of 90 civil organizations at the moment. And this was a local initiative in 2018 initially. But in the last three or four years, we have been working to consolidate it as a humanitarian platform to evaluate the this uh, humanitarian emergency. This was an initiative in response to three situations. First, uh, the lack of information that there was the lack of uh, public information that uh, the state, the Venezuela state has imposed since uh, 2015. Also, um, due to the economic and social crisis that has generated this lack of information. So um, there are no public data as well as that, there is a veto policy from the government and any uh, independent information, whether it's academic or from, from international organizations that is vetoed. So um, it is difficult to uh, be aware of this emergency and the need for international protection. And that's why we created this platform in order to really uh, have an idea of the impact and transfer this idea of the impact of this big crisis. It is a very complex uh, humanitarian crisis and we try to create uh, collaborations with civil society organizations in order to have this crucial information so that this is systematic and objective and so that we can from that create a good response that is adapted to the, um, to the needs of these communities. UM Venezuela does um, collects data once a year, and then every now and then we update that. We have three main methods of information. First of all, we have about 600 indicators in five main sectors, food, health, education, water, and life conditions, living conditions. For example, um, poverty or access to basic services. 
So we investigate these five sectors and with uh, about 8,000 sources of information, national and internationally. We also do our research uh, and diagnosis uh, with case studies. We have um, we have spoken about six thousand homes. In order to collect information to complement all the data that we already have. And so this way, we have been able to classify the information according to each state, very more specific for each of the 21 states. And lastly, we also document the situation with the need, uh, with the help, sorry, of more than 700 actors interdisciplinary groups and this way uh, we can listen to their knowledge and experiences and to the work that they are doing so that we can have a collaboration in order to um, in, in order to um, tackle these uh, problems. These, uh, all these stakeholders are, for example, organizations um, where um, with uh, affected people, professionals, um, humanitarian organizations, human rights organizations, scientific organizations, academics, about 700 stakeholders in total who share with us their work and their experiences. We have uh, been focused on the impact of this crisis. Firstly, before uh, the pandemic up to March 2020, and then we did a second evaluation that goes up to June 2021. And this one obviously includes the effects of the pandemic. And this, uh, of course, uh, made the situation worse. In May, uh, we will publish uh, new data, new information. And during the second half of this year, we want to evaluate the response and the complexity of this crisis. Well, I think I've gone over my assigned time, but I hope that I was clear. Thanks very much, Kristen. Yes, I mean, I think it's interesting, uh, and, and I might come back to you a bit later to ask you a bit more about your community diagnostics uh, approach. But um, that this Hum Venezuela's initiative was partly necessary because 
the UN wasn't really stepping up in terms of the information that it was supposed to be providing. And I guess this is related to the government's reluctance to, to allow um, information into the public domain or possibly information that was, uh, was not positive in the public domain. Would that be right, just very quickly? Yes, definitely. It was a very necessary initiative because uh, the UN uh, the UN couldn't publish uh, this information. Uh, this couldn't reach the organizations, the national organizations, because of the government veto. So only the information generated from civil society is the information that we can use, the information that uh, humanitarian uh, organizations can use in order to uh, create uh, a better response to this crisis in, in Venezuela and more adapted to the specific problematic. So I think, yes, you're right. It was very, very needed, this initiative. Yeah, that, that, that meant uh, maybe they had to um, to change the way they were doing things up until then so that they could really create this in really needed information. And I think um, the collaboration between the different organizations was also crucial. And we have really realized that working together is much better and we are much stronger this way in order to respond to, to give a good response to this humanitarian crisis. Thank you very much, Kristen. I'm, I'm going to move now to, we're going to move over to Colombia now where so many of uh, Venezuelan migrants have gone. And I, I want to address my next question to Adriana. Um, Adriana, in your article, you highlighted the need for a feminist response to the crisis, including a feminist migration policy in Colombia. And how, how are gender inequalities impacting communities affected by the crisis? And why do you think a feminist approach is so important in this response and what would that look like? Bueno, pues buenos días para todas y para todos. Voy a hablar en español. Hello everyone. I'm going to talk in Spanish today. And I'm going to try to start answering the first question, which uh, was asking about the impact of feminism in this organization, which is called the Observatory of Gender Issues of North Santander. It is true, women are facing systematically violence, which is basically the result of a patriarchal society that gives the control to men in this territory. All this prejudice affects accessibility to our rights. So we basically don't have access 
to our human rights, to work rights and health or education rights. But it also creates a problem related to violence. From the Observatory of Gender Issues of North Santander, we have managed to identify what we know as trochas or the illegal border crossings that are next to the most important international bridges where um, people cross the border. And these are mainly used by women and LGTB people. This is especially where women and these communities face violence when they decide to use points to get into Colombia. We have registered different cases of violence, femicides, disappearances, and even collective rapes, torture, etc. However, we also want to highlight something very important. There is that here not only has an important role the inequalities, but they all have a collective role. These kind of gender inequalities bring other inequalities. For example, inequalities when accessing healthcare, education, employment, etc. So what I mean is that gender inequalities are not the only inequalities that women face in this territory. They also face problems like xenophobia, the hate that trans people face, the hate that LGBT collective face, etc. There's also a situation that happens to rural women. They also face a different kind of hate in this region. The violence and the gender inequalities that women are crossing the border face is interconnected with different factors that go beyond gender. And why do I think that it, this is important? Well, it's because this is going to give us the clues about how to accompany them and create different responses that are adequate to the problems they're facing. Since the Observatory of Gender Issues of North Santander, we're trying to focus precisely on this. We have realized that gender is not the only main factor, and that's why we should have a much broader vision when we talk about these issues. I would like to show all this by some examples. And we can see this when we talk to women in the center of Cucuta. We talked about trans women that are facing violence, not just by the hands of armed groups that control this region, the capital of the city, but also they're facing abuses by police officers. But why? Because they're women 
but also because they are trans women. That's it, there are some prejudices that they are facing already and that have a very important role in these violence that they face. But at the same time, there is a third factor, and that's that they are migrant women. And they also say it, Venezuelan migrant women also face these kind of problems, but maybe cisgender women do not face this kind of violence that we are facing. This also happens in different regions in the region of the Catatumbo, which is also under the control of armed groups and that is facing the violation of different human rights and violence. So women in general in this region are at risk. They are very vulnerable. But we have seen that Venezuelan women are the ones suffering the most from this violence. But why is this? because they are only not just facing problems coming from the armed groups, but also other problems. Sometimes they even face problems like uh, torture or violence coming from these armed groups. So they give information about the situation in Venezuela to these armed groups. As I said, it's very important to have all these factors in mind to create an adequate response. But as I said, gender is not the only factor to take into account. We need to study xenophobia. We need to study the diversion of gender. We need to study the situation of the LGTBI community in order to incorporate them and create an adequate response, having into account all these factors. We have advocate for different reasons and recommendations, especially feminist recommendations. And one of them is the migration policy based in gender. We now have different migration policies. We have different rules and acts coming from the state, but we don't have a feminist migration policy taking into account all these factors that we talked about in order to host migration women. And that's why we thought we needed a migration policy that focuses on gender. So as I said, a feminist migration policy that takes into account what is happening to women and to the LGBTI refugee and migrants, taking into account these factors so we can create a more adequate response for the migration people, but also a specific one that can be used by women and the LGBTI community. And this is something very important because sometimes it's taken for granted that a response is going to incorporate a feminism factor, but this is not enough for us. We think we need a feminist migration policy that is an answer to the reality that these groups are facing right now and that takes into account different factors and different sectors and incorporates them in a single response. 
we want a program to host different migrants, to host women and to host the LGBTI community, but also we want to eliminate these barriers, to eliminate this prejudice that leads to violation, violation, violation of their human rights and violent clashes. We want these women and the LGBTI community to exercise their human rights. I would also like to talk about uh, why we think it is important to have a feminist migration policy. We think it is important to start creating knowledge and to carry out feminist investigations and research because we don't have a lot of information about what happens in our territory and especially in the middle of this situation of migration crisis and to start carrying out research and collecting data it's very important for us is critical to be able to create responses further so what we want now is to be able to carry out these investigations and to collect data about what has been happening since women in these vulnerable groups left Venezuela until they got in Colombia, until they were hosted in these countries and how that happened. And this is critical for us. We think that the creation of knowledge and data is going to be crucial to be able to generate a better response at the long term. As also we need all this data to be able to create a better response. And this is what we're doing in the Observatory of Gender Issues of North Santander. We create knowledge. We are the main organization that is creating this kind of knowledge in North Santander and that focuses on the feminism policies and studies migration of all these people in the context of a crisis. We are living in a situation now when we don't create this data or this knowledge to see what happens. So for a lot of organizations, public organizations, it is more comfortable not to generate this knowledge or if you have it, don't make it public. So that's what we're trying to change. We can't change everything. We don't have the um, capabilities, but what we do is to generate and to make public this information so we can know what is happening in our territory and how we can change the situation and what exactly we should do. And I think that will be all for now. Thank you, Adriana. Yes, I might have a, a follow-up question for you a, a little bit later on, but I want to turn now to Alex um, at Profamilia. Um, Alex, Profamilia's work promotes the respect and exercise of sexual rights and reproductive rights for the entire Colombian population. And how has Profamilia adapted its policies and work 
to be inclusive and actively support the needs of Venezuelan migrants, in particular the LGBTQI plus people, uh, plus communities. Muchas gracias, Wendy. Eh, como bien Thank decís, you, Wendy. As you said, Profamilia is a non-profit organization for sexual and reproductive rights in Colombia. And it offers services of um, sexual and reproductive and also uh, pharmaceutical products, especially related to um, to birth control. We also have other humanitarian projects. First of all, we need to understand evidence. We need to understand what the needs are, generally with health and also sexual and reproductive health. Since the migration crisis, we have been involved in that since in 2018, we evaluated uh, what the needs were. And in 2020, we launched a, a project to support these Colombian, uh, these migrants in Colombia. This year, Pro Familia uh, con um, la, el Grupo Humanitario y con ODI también está trabajando en estos uh, proyectos. Tenemos que, we, we have to understand where, what the needs are and what the barriers are, especially with uh, um, sexual rights and reproductive rights, but also generally in health. We also need to understand the gender roles in the context of migration. And once these people are in Colombia, So um, specifically, what we found, uh, specific, especially with LGBT population, in the last years, uh, uh, since 2018-19, uh, uh, there, ha there has uh, been a big, um, Big, big number of um, VIH um, problems to do with um, LGBT community and viral hepatitis as well. And many of these migrants did so to um, look for treatment for these problems. Uh, Venezuelans feel safer in Colombia when it comes to their gender identity. And they are victims of homophobia and transphobia. So we understand that and then we've been able to draw um, our strategies, for example, to guarantee safe spaces for these migrants 
we run uh, some sessions in order to raise awareness with the health uh, professionals, for example. This is one of our projects. Also sessions with that involve the trans people and non-binary people, migrants, together with health professionals. And the objective, of course, is to improve uh, the treatment that these people receive. We also offer ITS and abortion services to these people. And sometimes we also offer hormonal treatment for trans people when that is adequate. This is not a part of our minimal package, but we do include that sometimes when it's needed. We uh, collaborate with other organizations whenever we cannot offer a service. So we can uh, derive um, the patients to other places. For example, if someone needs an, uh, an HIV test, we can offer that through a different organization. Or when someone needs legal advice, amongst other things. Thank you, Alex. I, I mean, I think um, from what I understand and from reading the articles from the various contributors, um, one group, uh, and we mentioned, I mentioned earlier in the, in the session, in the introduction, the caminantes or the walking migrants seem to be particularly vulnerable. Um, is that, has that been uh, your, has that been something that you found in your experience and could you explain why? Yes, yes, definitely. Our, our research with a uh, humanitarian policy group, um, which we will uh, do next month. As part of this research, we have defined different uh, migration profiles. For example, in Cúcuta, with Pendula migrants, in Bogota, where it's a permanent migrant profile. And we need to make sure that we reach everywhere and that we identify the different migration routes and identify all the specific needs of the different groups. The Caminantes group we cannot uh, see that as a homogeneous group. 
So, for example, caminantes with discapacities or caminantes who are trans or who have um, HIV. So we need to really uh, know uh, these uh, specific details. Yeah, thanks for that, Alex. And I, I think um, uh, Lucia might be able to uh, respond to this question as well in her intervention. Wendy, we cannot hear you. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> You'd think by now that I would have uh, conquered Zoom. Thanks very much. Um, Lucia, I was saying that Colombia has been praised for its positive response to migration, but as you highlight in your article, more needs to be done. And what, what action has the Colombian government taken to support Venezuelan migrants? And, and what additional changes do you think are necessary to ensure that these measures are effective? Thank you, Wendy, and thank you for the invitation. I'm going to do my presentation in Spanish. Eh, buenos días, muchas gracias por la invitación. En primer lugar, quisiera brevemente... Thank you very much. I'm going to talk in Spanish. First of all, I'd like to talk about the organization de Justicia, which is an investigation center related to human rights. We've got more than 15 years working in Colombia, Bogotá. The last three years, we have been carrying out different research about the violation of human rights that migrants face in Colombia and how to tackle and eliminate these barriers. And now I'm going to answer the question. Well, first of all, one of the main actions that we have been taking and that the government has taken, it's precisely the temporary protected status for Venezuelan migrants or TPS that is going to allow Venezuelan migrants to be legally in the country for 10 years, work, have access to healthcare, education, etc. And I'm going to highlight this measure because it's going to be one of the most important ones, especially in the civil society. All of the organizations have talked about how important this is, how important it is to regularize permanently the situation of these migrants in Colombia, especially because of this relationship that exists between having a regular status and having access to different services. Although the Colombian state is um, obliged to give access to migrant women, sometimes this is not the case, especially for people that need a more access in the long term. So for example, people, as Alexander was saying, with HIV or people with terminal illnesses. Before they didn't have access to these long-term healthcare systems, but now they do, thanks to this temporary protected status, which is an answer to this situation and that has been applauded internationally. However, as I would say, there are some legal voids that really worry us. And we're also worried about the situation of people that cannot apply to these TPS. I also think it's important to mention that before these TPS, the government had applied different actions in order to defend the migrants, um, the human rights of Venezuelan migrants. For example, some migrants could apply for a um, residence permit if they had Colombian family or uh, some temporal stay permit in cases of crisis of emergency. 
as Adriana and Alexander could um, explain later. So um, even though there were some of these measures before, they were not maybe as detailed as this one, as the DPS. And I'm going to talk about the second part of the question. So what needs to change to be able to apply this adequately? So regarding the TPS, we are worried about five things. First, the guarantee of a right process. Even though states can decide who gets in the territory and stays permanently, or even gets out of the territory, there are some minimal guarantees that need to be complied with. In the practice, this TPS depends on the state. So a person can be, they can decide not to guarantee or not to give this TPS to a person in particular because the last decision of granting it or not depends on the Colombian state. So the person could not appeal against this decision. So it is one of the um, only measures that we have right now to guarantee the human rights. And that's why we are worried about not having this um, opportunity to appeal in case the person didn't get it or was not granted the TPS and wants to appeal. And then we're also worried about a second case, which is when this TPS is cancelled. There are different um, reasons why the TPS can be cancelled when it has been granted. For example, when they consider, as the resolution says, when they consider that the person is inconvenient in the country or because of security reasons shouldn't be in the country. These are very wide terms that can um, lead to problems. And obviously, again, they do not have the possibility to appeal in case these people have canceled the TPS that they were previously granted. This is obviously one of the main protection measures that the Colombian state has granted. And that's why we are worried about these two points that I was talking about. And we want to find a better way for the people to keep and maintain this TPS and be able to stay in Colombia and keep the residence permit. I would also like to talk about asylum seekers. Internationally, um, some people can apply for this in a complementary way. Um, a complementary international measure way is used by the country when a person cannot access a refugee status but has different rights. And that's why we're saying it's complementary. However, when the Colombian state decided um, to implement it, we could see that it doesn't have the same scope. So this permit allows a person to stay in the country, 
But if the person has to travel, or the person has to leave Venezuela, for example, because of political reasons, because they are persecuted and are part of the Interpol list, these people cannot get um, these uh, measures. And if they do, they can be sent back to Venezuela. So in that sense, the situation is even aggravated in the case of asylum seekers, because when a person applies to get this kind of measure, and if it is granted, these people have to choose between this new measure granted by the Colombian state or the asylum application. Since in Colombia, asylum seekers cannot work and that the decision can take a long time to be processed, people that need to work have to choose and especially they choose these uh, measure granted by the Colombian state and they abandon their asylum claim. So in practice, if I can work and I can't leave, then I don't have the choice to choose between one or, or the other. What I really have to do is to choose the one that is going to allow me to work. We did try to incorporate different changes, but it hasn't been possible so far. Um, and now I'm going to talk about how to incorporate measures that are based on gender. Even though the provisional measures um, granted by the government did recognize different gender identities in theory, in practice, it's been very difficult to implement this measure because there is a lack of knowledge about the problems that face migrant people. So even though these status incorporates a process with which the person could go and register this different gender identity, the reality is that when they go to these public registers, they are asked to pay in order to do so. Lots of people do not um, have the means to do it, they can't afford it. And so the measure is not benefiting a big number of people. I know that different organizations have been working in order to change the situation, to raise awareness about it, and to try to find a solution and eliminate this payment, but it hasn't been possible so far. This is an example that even though it is a measure that has a gender approach and that it's very good in practice, in practice is not working or is very difficult to incorporate it due to this payment that I was talking about and that the high cost related to it. And finally, I'd like to talk about the family union. All these permits have a very individual approach. So it is not possible for a person, for example, that it's holder of one of these permits extends it to the rest of the family members if they are not in the country at the time of getting it or registering it. This is limiting 
response to the situation and we are concerned that it should also be a problem in the future because the migration flows and the type of migration types that we are looking keep changing over time. Obviously, families not always can migrate together. Sometimes half of the family migrates first or maybe the parents do it first and then the rest of the family joins them until they get more stability. Once they get this stability, then the elderly migrate, children migrate. If these people do not get in the country by legally checkpoints with a passport and a stamp on it, they're not going to be able to hold this permit and stay in Colombia. This is something that really is worrying us right now because we're going to have people in a family with different kinds of permits and different access to human rights in the family. So we're trying to raise awareness. We're trying to make a call on the government to reevaluate this situation. And obviously we know that this is something very important. We know that these TPS is important and is very useful for people that are in the country and that got in the country legally, but also to people that got illegally until the 31st of January, 2021. In, the practice, in practice, as we all know, due to the situation in Venezuela, one of the main difficulties is the access to documents, the access to passports. Lots of people after the 31st of January, because the border was closed or because they were undocumented, they had to go through illegal checkpoints to Colombia. And in theory, these people don't have access to the TPS or the temporary protected status. What's going to happen to these people? Are they going to be in the same situation when they could not have access to all these uh, services and human rights? We think it's important to have measures for them to guarantee an alternative route. We can even think about different measures in order for the government to go through the applications faster or for people that have um, got in the country using legally checkpoints to do it in a different way or maybe to do it faster than people who haven't. And I think I'm going to finish with this. That's great. Even though the TP... Sorry, Lucia. It Thank you. Thank you very much. It looks like I got interrupted. Yes, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, I think we, we are going to have to move on just because of the shortage of time. But that's a really interesting summary of all the remaining obstacles that there are. And, uh, you know, I think the, as we've said before, as others have said, the Colombian government has, um, should be praised for, for its positive response. But there are so many gaps still that need to be addressed that you've uh, identified here. And those of you in the audience can read more about that in uh, Lucia's article. Um, now, because we're running short of time, I'm going to move on to a few of the questions and comments that we have in the, the chat here. Um, let me just uh, go through. There's one of the, um, one of the questions uh, I have for Kristen is what has been the impact on whom Venezuela and civil society in general 
of the establishment of the international humanitarian architecture in 2019 under OCHA. Do civil society actors feel included in and empowered by these structures? I mean, how do you interact? And that's for Kristen. Okay. Preguntan cómo, 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 para ver si entendí bien la pregunta. So you are asking how the Venezuelan work has influenced the um, humanitarian architecture, is that right? I, uh, let me see. I, yes, I think the, the question is really about um, it, what the impact on whom Venezuela and civil society has been. What, what impact has the establishment of the international humanitarian architecture in 2019 actually had on whom Venezuela and civil society? Um, and do you feel that civil society actors mm -hmm. are included in and empowered by these structures or, or not? Is that clear? Is that clearer? Yeah. Sí, perfecto. Yes, perfect. Thank you, Wendy. Well, this is not a public information but we know that it has been a base for many international humanitarian actors can have access to the, this information. And we have seen information from UM Venezuela in publications nationally and internationally. So, for example, in the um, Office of um, Humanitarian Affairs, we have been data and we've seen an article about the health situation in Venezuela, which, which has been based on UM Venezuela information. So it has been very useful. So the government doesn't allow to show the scale of our data. We work with 28 million people in the country, and that includes migration since 2015. So 14 to 18 million of these people have at least one humanitarian need. So that means more than 50% of population are facing at least one humanitarian need. More than double what the government allows us to show in the humanitarian plan, which mentions 7 million people since 2019. And this figure hasn't been updated. And up to June 2021, 20, 20, we think migration is about 9 million. That's the figures that we have, but this is not um, 
a figure that is publicly known. So, um, yes, we think information is appearing more and more. I think our work is very needed and we need to continue because um, the crisis is worsening and we need to really uh, make, this, make this known. And we need to really update the figures so that we can respond better, so that the help can reach all the people that it needs to reach. And we mustn't forget that the reason why these people migrate is because of the really hard conditions that they face in their country. Mm -hmm. No, thank you very much, Kristen. I, I, I guess, um, I mean, one of the issues and a follow-on question, although we're, we're running uh, short of time, so just very, very briefly, what, what's been the reaction of the Venezuelan authorities to civil society actors like yourselves providing information about these issues? Just very, in a very, very brief uh, response. Thank you. They have tried to close um, the channels, the civil uh, actions, stop organizations like ours. But the fact that we work together, many organizations work together, that makes us stronger and it makes us feel more confident. It's 90 organizations. So it's not so easy for the government to go against 90 organizations. The government is making it difficult for organizations. For example, now they make them register and register the work they are doing. And more than 700 organizations responded to, the, responded to this new measure by saying that it should not be applied. So as I say, the fact that we are working together, that we are a whole network, uh, has, al has allowed us to be stronger and to carry on doing our work. No, very interesting. Thank you, uh, Kristen. Um, moving along, just because we only have about eight minutes left, uh, a question here for um, Adriana and Alexander. And this is, um, you know, they, the, the question is prefaced by great presentations from all, so well done. Um, so to Adriana and Alexander, what are the barriers and opportunities for a feminist migration policy in Colombia, particularly in terms of public narratives and politics that can be either pro or against the rights of migrants, women and LGBTQ plus people? I mean, how are national authorities and institutions responding to your advocacy? 
Um, and again, if you could keep your responses really brief, just because we have so little time left. Let's go to uh, Adriana first. Listo, pues muchas gracias por, por la pregunta, me parece. Thank you for the question. I will try to be brief. The different organizations, we have, um, we have noticed that there is no will to generate a migration policy. We have uh, currently the TPS and that has been the focus of the policies and that has been good, but we need a national policy and that is being avoided in terms to a feminist of feminist uh, migration policy, the response we get is why, why do we need that? And what does that have to do with migration? In Colombia, in the last few years, there is a bit more awareness about um, the gender approach. And, and there are more programs and more projects specifically uh, dedicated to women and to LGBT and uh, to gender sensitive groups. So um, still, we still getting this um, reaction of what does feminism have to do with migration? Why are we linking this? So we still have a lot of work to do there, advocacy work, so that people understand that migration is also a feminist issue. And that is what we are working on. It is feminist, not just because there are women migrating, but also because they are, there are LGBT people. And so we keep working on this and so that people can realize that uh, the migration is a feminist issue. And this temporary status that um, uh, is, as I said, is mainly what the government uh, focus on. And now we have elections coming. So we need to put all this um, on the table and we need to make understand, everyone understand and the government understand that this is also a feminist issue the migration flow is also a feminist issue. Thank you very much, uh, Adriana. Um, Alex, very, very briefly, would you like to add anything to that? Sí, pensaría, pensaría en, en cuatro elementos para poder pensar una política emigratoria feminista. Yes, I think 
there are four elements for a feminist um, policy. First, a will from the government and recognize the migration as a crisis. Secondly, we need resources. We recognize it, but then we need the resources to respond. We need to work with the different vulnerable communities. And we need to put these groups into decision-making areas because we cannot make decisions from outside. And finally, the need to collect data and to collect experiences, information from experiences, because this way we can respond better. I think humanitarian response needs to be quick. Maybe not, will not be perfect, but it will be, it need to be quick and it needs to attend the needs of the different vulnerable group, groups. And then we need to institutionalize the different approaches. Thank you, Alex. Now, I think those are really important points. And uh, I think one of the most important ones that you highlight is the need to actually listen to what the experiences of Venezuelan migrants are in Colombia, you know, to actually hear from them and to, uh, to be able to uh, use that information to help advocate for the, such changes. Um, I wish we had more time because this is so interesting and there are so many other questions that we have and things that we could talk about, but unfortunately, we've only got a couple of minutes left. But I wanted to thank everyone very much for their participation, especially the panelists and their contributions. And to all of you who have sent in questions and comments in the chat, and it's been a really rich and interesting discussion. I also wanted to um, tell you that there, a recording of this event will be available in a couple of days via the event uh, webpage. And you can find links in the chat to the Humanitarian Exchange Magazine on the complex humanitarian emergency in Venezuela, which has been published in both English and Spanish. Um, and although I don't have time to list them all, in addition to the articles covering the topics we've been discussing today, um, we there are a number of other interesting and thought-provoking articles in the exchange. Uh, which I urge you to read, including on how partnerships between international organizations and local actors are supporting Venezuelan migrants in Colombia to access information and support, on the Colombia Cash Working Group's experience of advocating for and implementing two cash transfer pilots in support of Caminantes, an analysis of experience of integrating cash and protection responses, and a case study analysis which finds little evidence that social media is serving as a lifeline for Venezuelan caminantes as it has in other displacement crises. So that's really all we have time for today. Um, the recording of the event, as I said, will be available in a couple of days via the event webpage. And I wanted to thank you all for your participation. So take care and goodbye. Thank you. <laughs>